Hello and welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Doman. And Stephen Craig. And this is episode 30, Big Benchmark. Wow, it's or crazy we've gotten this far. Roadmark. Roadmark? Listening mark? Milestone. Skid mark? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Roadmark. <laughs> okay. Um, so this week I've been working at, at Macrofab doing uh, kind of like some background work. Yeah, uh, the uh, selective solder. So if y'all don't know what the selective solder machine is, it's basically a wave solder machine that instead of a ginormous like twelve inch wide wave that you pass the boards over to solder the through hole, it's actually a little spindle of solder that's about oh about ten millimeters in diameter, and it's on a CNC gantry, and so it will basically put the board on top of it, populate all the parts, and it goes up and actually you know, kisses the board with the wave solder and uh, solders all the points. And so what I've been doing is generating its G code automatically with a script. And so basically you pass the script, the uh, XRS data, and then you also pass it a drill file. And so what it does is the script takes the XRS data um, and it knows how big the parts are. And so it's, it assumes all the drill holes in that area is part of the the part that needs to be soldered. So it includes the uh, actual through-hole uh, parts and then the vias. I still haven't figured out how to exclude the vias yet. I think I'm just going to put like a, a uh, size cap. So like if it's under this size uh, of a drill, ignore it. Yeah, because most people don't make huge vias. Yeah. That ends up being a mounting hole or something Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so yeah, that's yeah. what I'm, I'm thinking is how to solve the via issue. But yeah, and then you just take what this this script spits out. Um, it's, you know, G code that that machine can read and bam, it works. So it's been, I think it took me about two and a half days to write the Perl script correctly. Yeah, yeah. I saw you hammering out code for quite a while. Yeah, and uh, last night I wrote some sort code for it. So that way it will optimize, you know, it'll basically progress from the left side to the right side of the board. And so it's not just jumping all over the place. So it's actually uh, coming up with tool paths for the machine to move? Yes. Cool. Yeah, and it works okay. Um, so like let's for like the pin heck board, yeah. the pinball controller. Um, it's a ginormous board, and it's basically what I've been using as the benchmark mm -hmm. uh, for the performance of the script. Well, because it has a ton of through hole. It has a ton of through hole, and it's actually very easy for a human to optimize the toolpath. Right. Because there's a lot of through-hole right next to each other. Yeah, they're all in, in, in patterns that humans can see very easily. Correct. Um, when a human does the toolpath, the machine can run that toolpath in about 14 minutes. Yeah. So it takes 14 minutes from putting the board in and pulling out until it's all soldered up. The script can make a toolpath in about that takes about 22 minutes. Okay. So it's not perfect or as good, but it's good enough. Yeah. Well, I mean, what's the difference between you know seven eight minutes uh, when you're talking about if if we only need to run one PCB on it, seven eight minutes worth of optimization doesn't save anything really. No. It, well, it takes a human about thirty to forty minutes to actually program that. Right. Whereas this script automatically just spits it out. And so it's already saving. So, like, let's say you're doing the big 16 by 16 prototype panel. Yeah. Um, 
it would take a human about an hour to program that on the machine. Right. And so that six to seven minutes you would save optimizing doesn't make sense. Because you're you're actually saving fifty minutes. Fifty or, minutes or overall. Whatever. Yeah. Right. Right. So who cares about a couple minutes here yeah. and there? No, if you were going to run ten thousand of the same board, correct? That's then when a human would review everything. Yeah, review it and adjust the toolpath. Sure, sure. Uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and then um, I've been working on this calibration board uh-huh. for the same. It's mainly for the same machine, but I'm also going to use it for the selective solder for calibration of that machine as well. Oh, it's basically, is, is that the board that has a ton of different footprints on it? Uh, no, it's a, that, that's the angle test board. Oh, so that's the test my ULP script for Eagle. Oh, okay. I got you. Yeah. That, that board basically tests all the edge cases that you can make in Eagle. Right. Yeah. But so this board is, um, it has a lot of visual cues so that we can, um, calibrate visual, uh, visual systems and, uh, it will also be calibrating the, uh, selective solder. So it'll have through holes and it'll, um, actually, measure uh well visually measure where the solder is actually going and that kind of stuff okay so basically the operator can put this this board in yeah. and run the calibration uh, calibration tool path and see where it's soldering yeah and then adjust the zeroing based off that awesome yeah we're, we're gonna be doing something similar to that for the same machine right yeah, yeah, it's you, it's the same board. Okay, okay, so it, we can it's dual so purpose. Can, yeah, so that way I can just order like a hundred of these, <laughs> <laughs> and I don't have to make different test boards for it, for all the machines. So wait, how big is how big is this board? Because I thought I thought we had mentioned something about doing a sixteen by sixteen inch. This test one's board. this is twelve by twelve. Twelve. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, you're not gaining much more by going up to sixteen. No. Okay. And so it's got like um, silk screen that's printed on it in different widths. And, and distances, and it's got copper printed the same way and all that good stuff. Okay, yeah. Just a bunch of stuff to calibrate Yeah, whatever your system is looking at it with. Yep. Cool. And so for the selective solder, since the the nozzle's like 10 millimeters in diameter, Yeah. what I'm doing is putting uh, via uh, or through holes down and then putting through holes that shouldn't be in the path, yeah. but as close as I can to that path. And so if the if those uh, other through holes get soldered in them, then you know your your calibration's incorrect. Yeah, but if you do that, you, you get like one shot on your calibration, right? Well, yeah, that's the point. Okay, that's why I want to make them all the same, so I have a, just I can just order a whole stack, and it's in, inexpensive. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's cool. what I've been doing. Oh, well, sounds like a busy week. Very busy, code wise. So uh, I've been spending some more time on the SSPS. Uh, fun little project. Um, so we we've been talking for the past couple of weeks of having the uh, the analog board, but uh, there's had some new things pop up with it, some issues and some breakthroughs. So um, breakthroughs, breakthroughs of the issues. Yes, yes. Well, solutions, fixes, those kinds of things, right? So the um, the negative thirty five volt regulator that's on the uh, the board currently right now. I uh, I pulled a stupid and I had some transistors in a non-optimal configuration. <laughs> <laughs> I like that's how you put it. Yeah, non-optimal. Yeah. Well, okay. So I, I, what I mean by non-optimal is that they actually did what they're supposed to, but they did it in such a way that they got hot doing it. Um, and it was it's an easy fix to set them up in a more uh, 
optimal configuration. Uh, it, it was just basically swapping emitters and collectors. Uh, a more uh, power saving. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, yeah. It's now you have, green. You have to put some marketing terms. Yeah, on it's it. now green. <laughs> yeah, green. Right. <laughs> Except this thing is super inefficient. <laughs> but yeah, so the um, the way I had it before, my my big patch transistors that regulated the raw voltage down to thirty five volts, those were flipped, uh, and they were pulling too much base current, which caused a drive transistor to blow on them. And that's what flagged it for me. Cause I saw that thing go up in smoke. Uh, <laughs> and, and I was like, ah, oh, there's probably something I need to look at here. Oh yeah. That was, um, what was it? You were testing this earlier this week. And for some reason it was pulling some obscene amount of power and you had it current limited on the power supply. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, dude, just turn that thing to three amps and see what smokes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, yeah. You found it. Uh, and, and, and it, the funny thing was it is it lasted for a while. Uh, and and I was actually able to. I even got some some screenshots and tweeted out some stuff of it working before this transistor, you know, went up in smoke. But I noticed that the transistors were backwards. I was like, okay, great. So I flipped those. Everything is all fine. Uh, everything looks to be working great. Basically, I have raw forty three volts coming in, and I have positive negative thirty five volts coming out. Uh, which exactly what I want. But whenever I do a, a project uh, like this, what I will do is I'll print out the schematic and I go point by point on the schematic and I measure the voltage and draw it on the schematic just to make sure I'm doing what I was I was do, uh, thinking I was supposed to do. And I compared that against the simulation. And, you know, I was going point by point and they were nail on, like spot on. I was like, this thing is great. And then I reach the error amplifier that controls the feedback loop that sets the output voltage and on the positive side i was expecting to see something like close to 35 volts for the error amplifier because it's trying to make it 35 volts yep on the positive side i saw 15.2 volts and on the negative side you would expect negative 35 i saw minus 1.78 volts and trust me I, i i measured these things like 800 times and everything around it. I was like, okay, this is crazy. I've got these ridiculous voltages, but the regulators are doing what I want them to do. So, I, of course, I was measuring all these DC with our meter, and I was like, okay, it's time to bust out the scope because something has to be happening on these lines. Yeah. Pull the scope on them, and they're oscillating like a madman. <laughs> they're going all over the place. Um, the positive uh, error amplifier was oscillating at 12. 6 kilohertz and the negative was oscillating at 2.4 kilohertz uh so of course i go look at my air amplifier and it has feedback but it doesn't have local feedback it doesn't have strong feedback uh and it's basically just relying on the regulator to feedback and that's not anywhere near enough yeah um and i and i think i'm using tl082s which are like jelly bean just run-of-the-mill op amps they're not like powerful they're not fast they're just like whatever yep um and so the, so if you look at the this the um the oscilloscope they were clearly pinging between their rails yeah top yeah. and bottom like all over the place so all i did was i added a uh, a one meg resistor in parallel with a hundred microfarad cap uh from the positive i'm sorry from the uh inverting terminal to the uh output so applying negative feedback with a pole on there, yep. a feedback pole, bam, all the oscillation went away, 
and the output is rock solid. And that's a big filter. <laughs> it is a big filter, and that's why. Oh, so here's the thing: both the positive and the negative uh, sides are identical in terms of their uh, values. Yep. But just minor, minor differences in tolerance between components caused one to oscillate at 12.6 kilohertz and the other one at 2.4. That's classic, you know, oscillator feedback where it's just like a little bit of picofarads here and there causes it to just go freaking nuts. Nuts, yep. So that's why I just swamped it out with a huge cap. And basically that slides the uh, the corner frequency of the oscillation down to like, I don't know, sub half and hurt you know so like it's, <laughs> yeah. it's so, so nowhere yeah. we can actually measure yeah, yeah, that. N- n- nowhere that it actually matters and nowhere that it gets enough energy to pick up yep. and go anywhere so that fixed that problem and it's all rock solid and things are not overheating now because <laughs> my, my transistors were getting kind of hot well yeah you were just, you were just slamming them on and off exactly <laughs> but here's the thing that's crazy if you even when it was oscillating my big pass transistors if you looked at the output they were doing a really good, good job, job of smoothing, of, of it, smoothing out. it out. A yeah, fantastic thing looked great. The, yeah, the thirty-five volt rails were awesome, flat, but they were their bases were just getting hammered. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was great. I, yeah. My favorite was when we we had it all hooked up, and I had my digital board, and I was sending it I square C commands to increase voltage, mm-hmm. and it worked great. It did exactly what it was supposed to. It was just really hot yep. while doing it. <laughs> so yeah, that's it. Uh, Good, yeah, good really lesson to learn. Put no your scope load. on there. Sorry, what was that? It was, it was really hot with no load. Yeah, well, and it's not supposed to be. Yeah, it's not supposed to be. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, that, I did that this week. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and I worked more on the SSPS as well. Um, I, I did some code work on the uh, test board. Yep. Getting the I2C, you know, ready to go. I'm probably going to try to... Um, read the adc that's on the board right because we can see the current that's yeah, so we can see the current and then you're going to green wire in a voltage divider so i can actually get voltage feedback yeah we we have a uh we have an a to d on there that has a, a couple of of terminals that are left open and i i left them open so we can pick voltages and just you snag them on so we got to put a, a voltage divider um into it because uh it's a three three uh device and we got 35 volts on the output. Yeah, that way we can do some uh, digital feedback. Mm-hmm. I want to try that first before ordering and and going further with the project. Is like let's get a basic you know PD loop going. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, as of right now, we can technically use it as setting a voltage, and it'll produce that. Yep. Um, we need to do some load testing. That's for sure. Yeah. Because I want to make sure that that oscillation doesn't come back when you're pulling 10 amps. Yeah. 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 Because yeah, this thing can, yeah, it's going to be insane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. SSPS is progressing slowly but surely. Yeah. Um, we'll have a nice, badass power supply. Yeah, an ultimate power supply. The ultimate power supply. If you have $5,000, you can build one too. <laughs> <laughs> this SSPS is the ultimate power supply in the universe. <laughs> you may fire when ready. <laughs> oh yeah, we we still need to make that little lever thing that we were yeah. talked about. Actually, um, that was my favorite thing. I'm looking at the uh, waveform, yeah. and when you go boo, it makes a really cool waveform. It makes it makes a, it makes a nice little envelope on there. Yeah. We, 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 we have the uh, we have a screen here where we can see our our waveforms. <laughs> um, 
So we've been writing a lot of articles. Yeah. For uh for Macrofab, uh, for the engineering blog, and we we were basically like looking up how to make the titles better instead of being like, oh yeah, this is just how you do this in Eagle, like cause that's kind of boring. Um, and so we got the idea of making clickbait article titles like BuzzFeed. <laughs> um, yeah. And so these are some ideas that I came up with. It would be uh, five cost-saving tips no contract manufacturer wants you to know about. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 I could totally see that being something on Facebook that pops up. Yeah, yeah. But it would be hyper uh, uh, specific to guys like us. Like, yeah. It would pop up. Because I see like oscilloscope ads pop up yeah, on facebook you know? yeah. <laughs> so yeah i came up with one uh too a uh, good clickbait it says the pcb went in the oven you'll never guess what happens next <laughs> <laughs> engineers that have this oscilloscope know this one weird trick <laughs> <laughs> and now you can know it too <laughs> engineers hate them <laughs> uh Oh my gosh, engineering clickbait. Yeah, engineering clickbait articles coming to you soon. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> I think real true engineering clickbait would be like just telling you how to do something. Yeah, that's exactly like, what know? it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah, and and it's really cut and dry. It's like figure out how to unclog your sink. I'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, I need to know how to do that. Okay, cool. You know? <laughs> um, it was just like a video of someone just plunger into it, and that's it. <laughs> Actually, okay. Not okay. like five minutes explaining, this is a plunger. This is how you use it. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> like the no BS how-to channel. <laughs> So, so actually, I got a, I got a funny, funny story about that. So I'm, I was actually driving today from work to come to here to record the podcast, and and I always throw some something up on my phone that I can listen to. So I was like, man, I need something to eat up some time. So I just threw up this thing that was a YouTube video on, um, oh gosh, what's it? the the Tacoma Narrows Bridge, the one that you know. Uh, oh, it was wiggling. It was and it wiggling fell and it fell, but it was like. How did it fail in engineering? You know, like <laughs> where did they go wrong? And then like that led to something else about some other bridge. How did engineering go wrong? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but it totally you know, like that video led to another video that was like other engineering failures with bridges. And then it finally was like I was like oh man I saw one that was covered with water and I was like what's a tsunami look like? So I started like going down this <laughs> down this path like that is clickbait. If yep. you could keep that rolling, like how did this fail? How is this successful? Top 10 fails in engineering, part one. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Fantastic. Yep. Um, then we had this really cool idea this week of, I don't know when we will actually be able to build these, but I think we need to. Oh, yeah. Is So at MacFab, we build everything pretty much in 16 by 16 panels. And so I had the idea of, I got this idea from that uh, CNC machine that uses FR4 as its chassis. Yeah. Um, I'm like, well, what else could you apply that to? And I'm like, robots. Because designing the CNC stuff, like milling it out of wood or aluminum, is that's kind of crappy. Because you have to have another manufacturer and et cetera, et cetera, <laughs> more supply chains. Really annoying. So what if you built the entire robot... Like everything, well, besides motors, I guess, um, out of fiberglass of the FR4. Okay. So you built the whole robot on one panel. Right. 
Yeah. The frame, everything. The fr- all the chassis parts are from the FR4, and it's one big panel. Yeah. And then I was like, well, we could expand that and make it like a battle bot. Ooh, I like this. Yeah, so and make it like, so it has a, uh, you know, a chassis, you know, two motors, some wheels, and then a flipper in the front. They can flip stuff over. Yeah. And then because if it's a battle bot, it's got to have a flipper. Yeah, it's got to have a flipper, and so you got and it's got to have a like an eighteen six fifty battery, and that's what it's powered by. And so you you take it and then you just plug in your radio transceiver into it. Yeah, and that's it, and ready to go. So yeah, I, I like I like the idea of kind of unifying everything. Everyone starts from the same general um, uh, platform. But then they modify it to whatever they want. Yeah. And so I was going to design the board to be uh, expandable. Mm-hmm. Right? And so you have you have the board, and it'll have most of the parts on it, minus the motor controllers. Okay. The motor controllers are on separate PCBs that are on the same panel. And so for this kit, you just plug those into the headers that are on the board. Sort of like a shield or a yeah. hat. Yeah. So this way... Uh, and then you build the whole robot that way, and you can you basically will take the motors, you will um, screw them into the, the fiberglass, and blah blah blah. But if you want to go even further and build your own custom chassis, you can take that board out, mm-hmm. put it into whatever chassis you want, and if you need to upgrade the motor drivers, unplug the motor drivers, plug new, bigger, beefier motor drivers in, then you're done. Gotcha. So you're you're, you're providing a baseline. Yeah. That can expand infinitely. Infinitely. Yeah. As opposed to just saying, I want a battle bot, I got to go weld a whole bunch of steel together. Yep. This will be the the FR4 battle bot. I think battle bot's actually a trademark. Oh, it, yeah. W- we wouldn't be able to use that name. Um, FR4 bot or something. Yeah. Fiber bot. The fiber bot. Man, that sounds like something you eat at the doctor's. <laughs> like before you get a colonoscopy. <laughs> the doctor comes in. I'm gonna have to prescribe a fiber bot to you. <laughs> <Fiber bot> for <laughs> you. No, not the fiber bot. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> Why does it make that noise? <laughs> uh, so we'll probably slowly work on that idea after the SSPS is done. I think it would be really cool if um, if we could produce. Uh, this might be ridiculous, but say if we produced ten of these panels and and, and um, provided them to people who would be willing to do a BattleBot competition. Yes. And then they all, in secret, design their own BattleBots with this platform, and then we get together and destroy them. Yeah, that'd be a lot of fun. That would be awesome. And the good thing is the panels would be pretty cheap, so if you need spare parts, um, you just get another panel that's blank. And you just pop out the parts you need. Right. Or you, uh, you get the files for the whole panel and just, if oh, you want just one piece, you, just piece you can out. just, no, just have that one piece made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and that's that's actually fairly easy at Macrofab yep. to just have that one little, you need a, you need a side panel because it broke. Yep. Yeah. Ah, I like that. Yeah, it should be a pretty cool idea. I don't well, know and, what I'm going to do. And with... technically, if you had, oh, since every piece of the whole thing is a PCB, you could put circuitry on it if you wanted to. Yes. That's cool. So, like, you can have, a, like, your side panel could be all, like, LED'd up. Now, sure, it'll burn your battery life, but it'll look really cool doing it. Or 18650s on every panel. 
I can see that exploding <laughs> and very awesome. And it's fireball. Very, and it's heavy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I haven't figured out what I want to do for wheels yet because that's actually would be the mo- motors are pretty inexpensive. Yeah. Um, the kinds that size that we need are pretty inexpensive. Uh, DC motors. Um, the wheels are expensive, and I don't know what I want to do yet with those. Okay. Like, do I want to use off-shelf wheels? It's probably yes. Um, oh, yeah. Custom wheels would be a pain. Yeah. And and I need this thing to be very quick. I think I'll just start, like, just basically designing a robot that's not um, in a panel and then just make it fit a panel. Oh, scale it? Scale it. Yeah. But, yeah, that's slowly going to start working on that. Yeah. Coming soon. That that's I like that idea. Yeah. And so for the RFO this week, we only have one thing. Uh, it's the uh, article by IEEE. It's the uh, popular Internet of Things forecast of 50 billion devices by 2020 is outdated. Yeah. So you think about that when they say that and you think, oh, is it more? Eh. It's actually less. No, I actually, I was reading a similar article. I don't think it was by IEEE, some, uh, something that was referencing this. And they pulled a couple sources of, of some uh, big names calling out all kinds of numbers. I mean, twice yeah. that. They were saying 100 billion. Yep. Some people were saying like 300 billion IoT devices by the end of whatever date. And they're all wrong. How many um, IP addresses can IP, was it... Uh, IPv6? Uh, How many IP addresses can they do? Oh, gosh. Yeah. I know it's in the billions. Yeah, I know. It's a, it's a, it's a ton. Yeah. I mean, well, you got six six digits that you can... No, you got more than that. You got Way more than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but I mean... IPv6 is uh, the new standard. Right, right, right. Uh, but there was like... Here. I don't know. There's some kind of thinking, there's like a specific code and then a handful of digits that reference that code. I'm going to look it up right now since we have a IP6 device right here. Ah. Or at least compatible with it. So yeah, so so 50 billion devices by 2020. That just sounds I don't know. Uh that's that's really optimistic if you ask me. Yeah, I think what they're assuming is like basically every single device can be connected to the internet. Um, but I don't see that happening. Well, I, 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 I don't blame them for for putting a high number on there because it looks like, I mean, more okay, and so more devices are being connected. A IPv6 address is 128 bits, so that's uh, two to 128, which is, uh, it's ridiculous. Yeah, ridiculous. So we're safe in this current expansion of IoT devices for addresses. <laughs> oh well, yeah. Uh, 102 well, to the 128th power is a Well, lot we're of out of IPv4, so. Well, I mean, you got to expand, right? Yeah. Well, that's why they did. Like, like area codes on phone numbers. Oh yeah. Well, interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, you never know. Maybe, maybe there'll just be a massive explosion by 2020. But I, I think I read somewhere instead of 50 b- billion devices, it was like 17 and a half. Yeah, th- this was um, the, it was like thirty billion is what the revised number was, which is still a lot of devices. Yeah, yeah. Your clock on your quartz clock on the wall will be IoT deviced for some reason. I I, I can actually see a clock 
just so that it maintains some form of perfect time or some some level of perfect time. I I guess it depends if that's cheaper than like an atomic clock. Well, but here's the thing: if everything can access one atomic clock and get their time well, from that, yeah, I'm saying. But is is building an atomic clock cheaper or more expensive than building a wall clock that's got um, Wi-Fi built in? Well, but but think of it this way: I own an atomic clock. And I sell uh, um, API calls to my atomic clock at, you know, a hundredth of a penny every call. And manufacturers are like, that's cheap for me. And then, and then well, everyone yeah, but what profits. If the, but what if that atomic clock module that goes into that clock is cheaper than a Wi-Fi module? Oh. Then every clock's an atomic clock. I mean... It isn't, but, well, but what I don't if? know, but I, <laughs> I don't know what the price of an atomic clock costs to build. Isn't it, uh, isn't it you have to count how many times an electron goes around a cesium atom? Something like that. Uh, and, and it, yeah, and it has a very specific number. Uh, and so gut, gut feel tells me that's not cheap. A Wi-Fi module is cheaper? <laughs> yeah, but gut feel's a lot cheaper. <laughs> Still, one day, one day we might have that. I think I'd be more excited for um, local wireless power is what I would be more excited for instead of IoT devices. And until it starts frying you. I, I, I thought it was – I thought we – maybe I'm wrong here, but but I, I thought you can't um, pass more than something like 10 watts through the air without having an effect on the human body. I don't know. the. Uh, I saw a TED Talk where they were talking about this stuff. And a guy had a TV, and then a and they and then his wireless or the wireless antenna power thingy that they had, and then he basically walked through, and the TV was on. Well, sh- okay, so so here's the thing: there's a difference between like wave guiding power and having like a direct stream of power, or just broadcasting. No, I'm saying well, I'm saying local is like your room. Oh, or like it's like my room. And so you can put oh, a, okay. one of these giant directional antennas on a wall, and that means every single device that's in that room is now powered wirelessly from that panel. Right, but they have to point towards that <laughs> directional antenna. Well. <laughs> I, no, I got you. Yeah, got that's you. what I'm saying is <laughs> stuff like that. That's I'm more excited for that stuff than, like, my toaster tweeting that is done toasting. Well, yeah, I saw a computer monitor that was entirely wireless, including power. Um, and and they were they were testing something like that out, and it and it worked fine, and they didn't have any noticeable health effects. But it's it, it, I, you're not going to charge your car wirelessly. No, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course, I'm talking like you know when you come home, your cell phone just automatically starts charging because you're in your your power bubble. <laughs> God, that alone would be worth it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And think about it. think about a remote control for your TV that never runs out of, d- of batteries. That'd be nice. Yes. <laughs> That'd be so <laughs> nice. But the phone thing alone is just is just totally worth it. Exactly. Yeah. It's simple stuff like that. It's all, it's all low power stuff. Maybe your TV. Because TVs are pretty or fairly low power nowadays. Yeah. I've, I've got a DLP sitting here. It's I guarantee you it's not oh, low. Oh, that's not. That's yet. not low yeah. power. But like a normal like LED backlit. Yeah. Um, they're 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 LCD, not. They're pretty low power. They're not too ridiculous. Not like the CRTs of old. 
But yeah, stuff like that. Simple, small stuff like that that's, you know, maybe like an LED lamp is wildly power too. So, so yeah, in a past life, I used to work as a, um, as a CRT uh, monitor repair technician. And I used to fix 22-inch CRTs. Which those things were absolutely ridiculous. They probably weighed about eighty three pounds. They, actually, <laughs> yeah, there was there was only a few people who would who would even touch those at the repair shop, uh, but but those took an enormous amount of power. It was to the point where you you press the on button, and the whole room was like. Yeah. I mean, it was ridiculous. I had a really awesome nineteen inch uh, Ericsson tube TV, a uh, tube monitor. Yeah, it was like sixteen sixteen hundred by twelve hundred. Um, it was a flat, flat tube too. Yeah, it was, it was kicker. The, the the color separation on those. Oh my! Awesome. I'll put it this way: I've never seen an LCD monitor that come even close to that monitor. Yeah, I actually still have that monitor because of how good it is. It's actually perfect for uh, FPGA development because if you're doing like a VGA driver or yeah. something, yeah, you can yeah. actually. Pull out a magnifying glass and count the pixels to make sure your timing's right. <laughs> you can't do that on an LCD because the LCD controller just fudges stuff. Yeah, you're right. It kind of it kind of blurs. <laughs> It'll blur. So yeah, so I'll put that monitor. I have not seen a monitor that that well. Granted, I've never seen a 4K uh, uh, CRT. High, high, no, a 4K like high DPI. I've seen a 4K TV that's like as big as your TV. Yeah. And I didn't think they were super impressive. But if you had a 4K monitor that's like 21 inches, that would probably probably look pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, that'd look awesome. I think they're currently at like 27 inches or something. Yeah. For 4K. Still probably won't get the color depth, though. No, because black on a CRT is black. Yeah, it's off. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, it's off. There's there's no bleed over. It's yeah, you just... always get a little bleed over with uh, TFTs. Yep, yep. So yeah, I think that's gonna wrap it up, right? Yeah, I think I think that was Went good. A little off topic there at the end, but that's fine. <laughs> Had fun. And uh, so that's gonna be the end of the Macrohab Engineering Podcast, episode thirty. We were your hosts, Parker Dolan and Stephen Craig. Catch you next time, guys. Take it easy.